thank you all for your prayer for my husband. Uh, most of you already know that uh, my husband, last September, so almost more than a year ago, my husband with, uh, was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. So after a surgery and with medication, he's actually doing really well. So, thank you. So Robin called him Mr. Nodgers because he was raised from the almost dead. So at the end of uh, June, he felt good enough to go back to work. So, so we don't know what our future holds. And but actually, we all don't know what our future holds. But we know who holds our future. So that's good enough. But actually, that is the key point of the story today. So I'm done. <laughs> anyway, so okay, today's scripture is Daniel 7 to 9. So how many of you have been in Sistine Chapel in Vatican? Okay. So you saw this ceiling, right? At the top of the Sistine Chapel, the Michelangelo painted seven Old Testament prophets. And he chose the prophet that he felt had a special significance for Christianity. So one of them was Daniel. Can you find it? <laughs> it is right here. Here. So when we come to the second half of Daniel, we have to make a shift to a different altitude. Uh, chapter 1 to 6 is a narrative of events and easy to understand. But chapter 7 to 12 is categorized as apocalyptic literature. So there are several different characteristics in these chapters. You have a flyer, so um, they're both pages, so you can check. You don't have to frantically take a note. So first of all, we move from the third person to first person. So from now on, it is said, I, Daniel. So it is, he is writing himself and about himself and about his visions of the future. Second, the language is different. So chapter 1 to 2, 3 is written in Hebrew uh, because this section gives the account of fall of Jerusalem and the captivity of Israel. And chapter 2, 4 to 7 is in Aramaic because the message of chapter is intended to be heard by not only the people of Israel, but all Gentiles as well. Chapter 8 to 12 is in Hebrew again. The focus here is especially on Israel. Third, these chapters are not chronologically ordered. You see, the correct historical order is chapter 1 to 4, 7, 8, 5, 9, 6, and 10 to 12. So chronological order has been overlooked to keep the historical part separate from the prophetical part. Fourth, these chapters are apocalyptic prophecy. The word apocalyptic is from Greek word apokalupto. So apo means from, kalupto means cover. So which literally means to remove the cover from. 
So exposing to open view what was hidden before. So what was hidden? It usually means this. <laughs> the end time. So obviously, uh, apocalyptic prophecy is notoriously ambiguous and express its idea in symbols. So when we read prophecy like that, first thing we want to do is try to break the code, right? So which produce tons of interpretations and theories. So if you read five commentaries of Daniel, you may end up with five different interpretations. So what I present today is one of many different interpretations. So don't be surprised, my interpretation is different than what you already knew <coughs> or already read. It's inevitable. But remember, the prophecy is given not so we will understand what God is doing. Prophecy is given to remind us that God is in control. Fifth, Daniel introduced both angels, uh, Gabriel and Michael, for the first time. So one characteristic of apocalyptic literature is interpreting angels. No human can know the true interpretation of the end time without heaven's help. The last, I didn't remember it here, but when you read these chapters, you need a calculator. Didn't you? Nobody? If you didn't need a calculator, either you are really good at math or you didn't study hard enough. <laughs> okay, so let's dive into chapter 7. So Daniel had the dream and visions of four beasts coming up out of the sea. This vision was given to Daniel in the first year of Ezekiel, which is 14 years before the fall of Babylon. Daniel is now in his 80s. This vision has a chiastic structure. So first, start with introduction. And the A, for beast appears, is parallel to A dash, a human-like feature appears. So it's all parallel to each other. But the key point is E, a throne scene. It's a judgment, and this is a Jesus time. So these um, beasts represent either four earthly kings or kingdoms or both. Uh, often a king is a representative of a kingdom. It's like uh, Louis XIV said, I am France, right? So, he, so king represents a kingdom. So verse 4, the first beast looked like a lion with wings like an eagle. This stands for Babylonian Empire or Nebuchadnezzar. In ancient times, the Babylonian Empire was commonly represented as a winged lion. So some of you might have seen a statue of lion with wings in photos or in the British Museum. <coughs> Babylon was known the shipness of its conquest, which was emphasized by the description of eagle's wings. But the torn wings and um, being given the mind of human seems to symbolize 
declining its power and ceasing conquering other people and becoming more humane and losing its beast-like nature. Second beast looked like bear without, uh, three, uh, with three ribs in its mouth. It stands for Middle Persia. So raising up one side may refer to the supremacy of Persia. The three ribs in his mouth represent the three great conquests, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. The third beast looked like a leopard with four wings and four heads. It stands for Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. The four wings signify the rapidity of its progress in conquering the world. So uh, by the age of 28, the Alexander the Great had uh, conquered the civilized world. After his death, uh, the empire split between four generals, which are kingdom of Syria, Egypt, Macedonia, and Asia Minor. So the description of forehead may represent that for different um, kingdoms. The forest beast is very unique, strong and terrorizing. Daniel finds nothing to compare to it. It has ten horns, which refers to ten rulers of the kingdom. Then a little horn emerges and defeats three of the horns. This little horn has eyes like human and an arrogant mouth, uniquely different from the other horns. Uh, this initial description of the uh, horse beast fits really well with the Roman Empire. But there is nothing in Roman history that matches tanking stage. And they suggest that this has not yet happened. Is present something that is in the future. This future empire will be in some way connected to the, the old Roman Empire. So many commentators um, refer to it as the revived Roman Empire. After the revived Roman Empire is established, the little horn, a man of great ambition, will rise and take control over it, and its influence at that time will be worldwide. So who is this little horn? In Revelation 17, 12 to 13, John saw something very similar. The 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. So when John saw, <coughs> saw one that he called the beast, but in 1 John, John identifies him as the Antichrist. This little horn is presumed to be an Antichrist. So let's see why. So first, check what this little horn will do in verse 25 
he will sit against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. So there are four distinct factors that are brought out by an angel about this little horn. They are very similar to John's beast in Revelation. First, he speaks against God. And Revelation 13, 6, 7 says, The beast opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer, conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And second, he oppresses the followers of the Most High. Third, the little horn tried to change the set times and the law. What this means is not clear, but times and law are the fundamental foundation of society, which are given by God. So the little horn, like Satan, wants to change the order God has established. So he wants to be God himself. The his, but his time of power is limited. A time means a year. So if we take a time, two time, and a half time, and add them together, we have a three and a half years. So this is the exact period of time of Antichrist power in Revelation. Revelation 13.5 says, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies to exercise its authority for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. The last three and a half years of human reign on earth will be a terrible time as the Antichrist is given all power to dominate the earth. And uh, Revelation 13, 1, 2 also says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It has ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horn, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Sound familiar? So John's beast has ten horns, and gather together all the characteristics of the first three beasts in, of chapter 7. The lion, the bear, and the leopard. That's why he has a seven head, because lion's head, bear's head, four of leopard's head, the, and the head of four beasts. That's why he has seven head. And also, it does all the things the little horn does. So the Antichrist and the first beast of John are the same as this little horn. And verse 9 to 14 are the conclusion of the chapter 7. It is the time for judgment. So the heaven, heavenly court was assembled and God sat in judgment. The little horn representing 
the Antichrist is destroyed with his empire. And then the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who comes down again with the clouds of heaven, will establish the everlasting kingdom. So Daniel's vision in chapter 7 is parallel with the vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. In chapter 2, the four kingdoms, which are symbolized by different parts of the four metals of the human image, from the head to the feet. Then, why should there be two versions of the same revelation? Are there any similarities or differences? Let's see. Similarity between two chapters. The first images in the chapter 2 have a four-part statue, but in chapter 7, four beasts. They both represent four kingdoms. And the final scene, statue destroyed in chapter 2, but beast destroyed in chapter 7. Of course, their outcome is eternal kingdom is established. And let's see the difference between two chapters. Who's the dreamer? Chapter 2, pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, who was man of vengeance and a man of pride. Chapter 7, prophet of God, Daniel, who was man of prayer and man of spiritual humility. What image uh, they saw? So what Nebuchadnezzar saw was an enormous dazzling statue made with gold, silver, brass, iron. But what Daniel saw was four wild and hideous beasts. So why should there be a repetition of the same revelation? The answer is that human and God see the nation from a different point of view. So chapter 2 view earthly kingdom from humans standpoint, which is all splendid and glorious. But chapter 7 view earthly kingdom from God's standpoint, which is immorality and brutality. And interpreter in chapter 2 is Daniel, and chapter 7 is an angel. And their description is, um, chapter 2 is more general, and chapter 7 is more detailed. And final stage, tento stage in chapter 2, ten horn stage in chapter 7. And the final scene, the statue is destroyed mysteriously by a stone in chapter 2. The kingdom of God was symbolized by a stone. But chapter 7, the beast destroyed in judgment by God. God delivered his kingdom to son of man, whose dominion shall stand forever. So in both visions, the messianic kingdom appears in its completion. Let's see chapter 8. So two years after Daniel's first this vision, God revealed information about the second and third kingdoms in another vision. In this vision, Daniel is in the future capital city of Persian Empire, 
suicide. Nehemiah also lived in Susa during the Babylonian exile, and Esther became queen in Susa too. The first thing Daniel saw was two horn ram over here, which is Middle Persia. The silver kingdom in chapter 2, also symbolized by bear in chapter 7. The fact that one horn was longer than the other may also be parallel to the bear in chapter 7, the raise one side, raise on one side, which show the supremacy of Persia. And chapter 4 says, the ram charged toward the west and the north and the south. The many commentators use this as a parallel to the three ribs in bear's mouth in, to describe the three directions of Medo-Persia, a Medo-Persian conquest. So Cyrus became king of Persia. He began conquering to the west, which is Assyria, Babylonia, and Asia Minor, and to the north, Armenia and the Caspian Sea region and to the south, Egypt and Ethiopia. And then, gold with prominent horn showed up. This referred to Greece and the first king, Alexander the Great, as a prominent horn. He was 20 years old and leading the army of only 35,000 into battle to defeat an army of 2.5 million Persians, just like the goat trampled over the ram. So in verse 8, the broken prominent horn represents the untimely death of Alexander. At 1833, on one rainy night, he got drunk, and he fell asleep in his wet clothes and caught pneumonia, and he died from it. Died from it. And some said he died from alcoholism. And the growing four horn referred to the division of his empire into four major sections. We saw this in chapter 7. So after Alexander's death, his four leading generals divided it among themselves by force. This event is symbolized by the four-headed leper in chapter 7. And let's see verses 9 to 14. You have to pay attention to what the little horn did over here. Out of one of them came another horn, which is starting small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heaven and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that caused desolation, to the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling on the foot 
of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. So verse 9 to 14 describes another small horn and what it did. This small horn is different than chapter 7, a little horn. That one is come, coming from um, the revised Roman Empire. This is from Greek Empire. So this part of the prophetic vision points clearly to the man that rose to power. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. So Antiochus was the king of Seleucid Empire, the area that controlled Jerusalem and all of Israel. Antiochus gained the throne of his father by murdering his brother. So the city Antioch, where Christians were first called Christians, was named after him. It was his capital city. He was called by his friends Epiphanes, which means illustrious one. The coin of Antiochus were inscribed with this title, Theos Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. So he wanted to think of himself as God. As a ruler, he was determined to unify his kingdom religiously and socially under the influence of Greek culture and idolatry. His Hellenizing prophecy brought him into conflict, particularly with the Jews. Antiochus established the following laws in Jerusalem. Jews could not assemble for prayer. Observance of the Sabbath was forbidden. Possession of the scripture was illegal. Circumcision was illegal. It was illegal to refuse to eat pig or any other food that was forbidden by the Mosaic law. It was illegal not to participate in the monthly sacrifice honoring Antiochus. This involved eating of the meat that has been offered in sacrifice. So you look at this, there's no way for the Jews to be Jews under these laws. So what Antiochus did was remarkably similar to what verse 9 to 14 says. But in 167 BC, in the small village of Mordin, the Seleucid official ordered that Metaphias, um, a Jewish priest, slaughter a pig upon the altar and offer it to Zeus. And then the villagers would eat of the pig, signifying their acceptance of the Greek religion. But Metaphias refused. But one of the villagers walked up and said he was willing to do it. So Metaphias was furious. So he killed this guy and killed the Seleucid official. And then his five sons attacked the soldiers and killed them. And the villagers banded together under the leadership of Metaphias and his five sons stripping the soldiers and their weapons and uniforms and hiding the bodies. In the following year, years, the sons of Metathias and especially
especially his son Judah, organized the resistance movement. So Judah, given the nickname of Maccabee, meaning hammer, because his hammer struck against the, the Lucid. This was how the Maccabean revolt started. After three and a half years of fighting, the Jews liberated the Temple Mount and were able to clean and rededicate the Temple. To this day, this cleansing has been celebrated by the Jews as the Festival of Life. It was also known as Festival of Dedication or Hanukkah. Yes, this is the origin of Hanukkah. So verse 14 said, these evil things will last for 2,300 mornings and evenings. There has been much controversy over what it meant. This might mean 2,300 uh, 2, days. That's about six years. Or it refers to the offering of a morning and an evening each day, which the Jews always does, but uh, uh, they cannot do it under this uh, Antiochus. So which means 1,150 mornings and 1,150 evenings is 1,150 days, not 2,300 days. So that's about three years. So six years of oppression or three years of oppression. Either understanding is possible depend on when you think of as the starting year of the oppression. However, what is more important than which period of time this verse refers to is that there is an answer. There will be an end to this trial. So later in the chapter, when the angel interpreted, he doesn't focus on the exact period of time, but on how the small horn will be defeated. So the entire chapter A was historically fulfilled in Antiochus. But to some degree, Antiochus foreshadowed the future world ruler who would dominate the world at the end of the times. So actually, Antiochus Epiphany is sometimes called the Antichrist of the Old Testament. So he prefigured the Antichrist of the end times. And last verse, Daniel said, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. When I read this for the first time, I felt better. <laughs> because Daniel didn't even understand his own prophecy, even though the angel interpreted it. So who the heck am I trying to understand all this, right? <laughs> when the second time I read it, Daniel gave me an inspiration of faithfulness. Even though Daniel was sitting for several days and horrified by what he saw, even though he had to live with 
unanswered questions for the rest of his life, he didn't stay in bed and worry to death. He got up, faithfully went back to work. Just the mundane task which God has provided for him at that moment on earth. So how many times we stay in bed and groan about our miserable life and uncertain future? I did it for many, many years. But if though Daniel doesn't understand it at all, he trusts that God knows what he's doing and God is in control and he will bring the light at the end of the tunnel. So I heard a story. Um, a persecutor of Jews in Russia asked a Jew what he thought of, thought the outcome would be if the wave of persecution continued. The Jew answered, the result will be a feast. The Pharaoh tried to destroy the Jews, but the result was the Passover. The Haman attempted to destroy the Jews, but the result was the Feast of Purim. That is, Esther uh, saved the Jews from execution of Haman. And Antiochus Epiphany tried to destroy the Jews, but the result was the Feast of Dedication. So what a positive attitude, right? So that is what we look forward to. Okay, let's go chapter 9. Mm. Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 is one of the longest and most instructive prayer recorded in the Bible. It was written in the fourth year of Darius, so it would have been 539 BC. That was about 66 years after Daniel has been exiled to Babylon. So Jeremiah 29:10 said, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. So when Daniel read this, he realized the time for Israel to return to the land was approaching. So he begins to pray for the restoration of his people and the nation of Israel. So Daniel's prayer is divided into two parts. First, prayer of confession. Daniel confesses sin of his own and the rest of Israel. This is confession of we, not they. But it doesn't focus on how pathetic we are. It focuses on the character of God. So what did Daniel say about God's character? You are great and awesome. You always keep your promises. You are righteous. You are merciful and forgiving. You bring lasting honor to your name. The second, the prayer of petition. So he appeals for mercy the restoration of the holy city and its sanctuary. But again, it is rooted in the character of God. In petition, we usually 
focus on our needs and our own best interests. But Daniel focuses on God's purposes and his glory. So Daniel's petition is God-centered. Okay, let's look at the most difficult passage of the day. Verses 24 to 27. 77 are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understands this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be built with street and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and the desolation will be decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many, one of, many for one seventh. In the middle of the seventh, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Until the end, that its decree is poured out on him. So verse 24 to 27 might be the most complicated, confusing, and controversial prophecy in the entire Old Testament. These four verses have provoked countless debates. As one theologian said, the interpretation which have been offered are almost legion. So the four common interpretations about this prophecy are the fulfillment to the time of Antiochus, or the time of Jesus' first coming, or the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD, or an unspecified future eschatological event. The problem is that the symbols and the numbers don't quite match any of these view perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense, they are all right. However, the view I adopted today is the last one. The Hebrew phrase 77 used here is sometimes translated as a 70 weeks. So if your Bible is not NIV or NLT, most likely you see the translation as 70 weeks. So weeks means a multiple of 70, seven years rather than a multiple of seven days. So 77 equals 70 weeks, seven times seven equals 49 years. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then, at the end of these 409 years, six things will take place. Finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, 
seal of vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy place. And then Gabriel explains what will happen during those periods. If we can figure out when is the starting point of 409 years period begin with, and then we can figure out when it ends, right? So this period begins with a very specific event. He said, from the time the word goes out, which means the issuing a decree for the Jews to go to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So before we figure out when it happened, I want to just lay out all the steps of the event first. So it begins with a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And then we also know the ending point, right? It ends with six things. One of them is an end to sin. And the anointed one is put to death after seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, which is sixty-nine sevens. Okay? Now we have to figure out the timeline. First, the starting point. There's a four different decrees concerning rebuilding within Jerusalem. Three decrees were for building, rebuilding of the temple, not the city. But in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, Artaxerxes made the decree. He tells Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So when you build a city, you must have a wall in order to defend the city. So the wall is the main defense system of the city. So that was 445 BC. So that was the beginning point of 409 years. Nine years. Now we have to figure out when the anointed one is put to death. That is after 69 sevens. So this whole time of 490 years is broken up into three smaller portions. Seven sevens is 49 years, 62 sevens is 434 years, and one seven is seven years. This is how we calculate, right? But the problem is that the Jewish people in the time of the Bible counted a year by 360 days, not 365 days, because their counting was always lunar. Therefore, 49 years would be equal to 48 modern solar years, and 434 years would be equal to 428 modern solar years. If we wonder how I calculate this, this is an example. So 627 to 7 is 434 years, right? So 434 years times 360 days equal 156,24 days. And then divided by 365 modern solar calendar days equal to 428 years. Isn't that saying we need a calculator? Yeah. Okay. So so this is the ending point. We don't know the exact year 
But we know that it is the end of 483 years. And then, and this is 1697. Then the anointed one is put to death after 1697, which is 476 years after 445 BC, which is 31 AD. So what happened in 31 AD? Jesus' death on the cross. This is also is debatable because some people said Jesus was born in 4 BC and 2 BC. But uh, most scholars agree Jesus' uh, birth year is 2 BC. So if the 77 were continuous, then the remaining 17 over here would have been completed seven years after Jesus' crucifixion. However, the continuation of word and sin we see right now is an indication that Daniel's vision of 77 is not yet completed. Therefore, the portion of the prophetic time has been put on hold. This 